How do you describe Maurice Sendak? I suppose the word is quintuple threat or multiple threat man. He's one of the most inspired of illustrators. We know, we, we think of him and of children's books, the, the creator of children's books, his art as well as his writings, and yet we know the books are for adults as well, where the wild things are, of course. That's part of a trilogy, where the wild things are in the night kitchen mm-hmm. and uh, outside over there. Outside over there. Uh, is your trilogy. And your monsters, we start with that, and then we have to talk about you and your work with the Glyndebourne Opera, with various opera companies as costumer, scene designer, librettist. Your monsters, your creations are quite mar- Fantastic is the word I'm thinking of, but fantastic literally, isn't mm. it? Oh, thank you. What's the word? Now, if I ask you the word to describe you, somebody might say sense of wonder. Sense of wonder. Well, it's like living permanently inside one's feverish, fantastic unconscious, and maybe not having lived well enough in the real world, (laughs) like outside the head. But that, uh, for the most part, my creative life, my personal life, and the life that interests me most is, is the inside life. In a funny way, the title Outside Over There is a parody of where the action really is for me, which is inside up here. Uh, But my attempts to occasionally get outside over there in the sense of being in the real world and living in the real world. And at 56, I have, of course, but in a funny way, I haven't because I've maintained uh, a link with the fantastic world of childhood, which is truly fantastic because there's no guidelines in it. I I put a note in my own. I I put down fantasy-reality, scary Dash comforting, leap into unknown. And I think it's both like your your spirits. The word is spirits, I suppose, uh, of fantasy, are very comforting too. They're scary and comforting at the same time, aren't they? Well, they're they're, they're supposed to be. Yeah. Because they come from the same place, and what is very scary and unknown to a child to us is commonplace, like a window. Yeah. You know, to a child, it's what is a window? Yeah. It's a great break in the wall, and there's a whole yeah. world outside the window. I remember as a child, I was fascinated with windows, and my grandmother used to sit at the window with me on her lap, and to entertain me, she would pull the window shade down, yeah. and I'd hold my breath, and then she'd let it up, and there's a whole new scene. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like the beginning of yeah. theater, but to a child, that's extraordinary. To us, it's it's banal almost. Yeah. And so that combination which you just read of fantasy and reality Not is losing, but that you did not lose ever. And that's the point. Not childish, childlike. Yeah. Childlike sense of wonder. Well, the sense of discovery oh, that everything is an extremely novel and some things are dangerous things until you figure out how they work or what they are. And that's the child's business of figuring it out. And so it's natural that these two... Very lovely books, certainly for Christmas, but for all seasons. A nutcracker, your Nutcracker. But based on the original, E.T. E. Hoffman was a guy who wrote fantasy works. Yep. And the Nutcracker that we know mostly is kind of candy, treaclish, sweet, mm-hmm. whereas he was a guy of mystery, wasn't he? Yes, he was a strange fantasist and dream writer. I mean, it's no accident that Freud went to some of Hoffman's stories for his own theories because Hoffman was there ahead of him. And the insights that you find in Hoffman about people in Nutcracker and the Mouse King, this story, I mean, the, 
the sense of this little girl's plight, the sense of this little girl's adventure in life is so substantial psychologically. It's amazing. And that's condescending to say it's amazing. I mean, why shouldn't somebody in the early 19th century have known as much as we do, perhaps even more? And Hoffman did know all that there was to know about the strange goings-on and quirkinesses in a child's head. And this book is important to me because it's all about that. This, it's, it's a book that's absolutely ex- exquisite. And looking at you realize you're listening to us talk about it. And it's not seeing visually. You're not seeing the works of Maury Sendak, my guest, Nutcracker, published by Crown. In addition, by the way, there's another, uh, The Love of Three Oranges, that you, together with a marvelous opera director now, stage director, Frank Corsaro. Right. And that's Barra Strauss-Hero. But that's for the moment. The first half is Nutcracker. Okay. Let me say, though, in talking about the book, the, some of the difficulties of adapting work from a ballet stage to book form is, you know, it, it might or might not work. And in fact... I think the, be- the the physical quality of the book is so beautiful because the you know, crown designer like uh, Ken Sansone who worked there with me in laying out the book, it's, you know, we spent a lot of time to make this book work <laughs> dramatically uh, and graphically. You know, casually you said, you see, there's so many strings to the bow of Marie Sendak adapting this book from the ballet. You and Kent Stowell, yeah. the choreographer Kent Sto- correct. of the, of the Seattle, yeah. of the Northwest, uh, the Pacific Northwest Ballet. Ballet Company. A wholly different nutcracker that was absolutely, what the observers, absolutely stunning and astonishing. What was exciting is that he's a choreographer with a literary bent who comes to somebody like me and agrees with me when I say, why bother with another nutcracker, with another sugar plum, with another Candyland, with another marzipan schlockfest. I mean, <clears throat> there are enough such versions that cater to, you know, a fairly ordinary taste, why not go back to Mr. Herr Hoffmann and do a German fairy tale on stage? I mean, the music is substantial and terrific. Tchaikovsky's score is mysterious and tricky. He's a tricky dick of ballet makers. And the music is going to hold up. You're going to put all the spikes back in the story. It's The score will not suffer from that. And it it yeah. didn't. So let's begin with a tableau. Now, we, we're doing about three different things here in talking to Marie Sendak. We're talking on the radio, so you have to envision the pictures, the set, the scene, as well as pictures in the book. By the way, the translation of E.T. Hoffmann is by the master translator from German, Ralph Mannheim. Yep, indeed, and it was a great privilege, honor, and great good luck to get him to do it. So we hear, now this is from the Sendak Nutcracker and Stowell Nutcracker. And so this is the traditional, the, the tableau, and the beginning of the party. Now, what do you, Marie Sendak, you and Ken Stowell do? Well, I, I now am crazy about yeah. what we just played because yeah. we've reinvented scenically what goes with this and what normally goes with this, uh, at, at least versions I've seen, are people crossing the stage sort of dressed in Dickensian fashion because it's always done in the Victorian era, which is, for me, totally wrong. And they're crossing the stage and they're going to the Christmas party. They're going to the Stahlbaum Christmas party. So this is often what's commonly called travel music, mm-hmm. which is silly because we all know they're going to get to the party. We don't have to see them going to the party. So we dump this and we use this extraordinarily pretty music that we've just heard, which comes immediately after the overture for a nightmare. And instead of people on the stage, we have Clara writhing in bed up high on the stage and below on the stage is Drusselmeyer and three eerie toys. One is a nutcracker, 
One is the Mouse King, the Perilous Mouse King, and the other is poor Princess Perlipata, who is a character in the Hoffman tale who never ordinarily gets into the ballet. And they are visions because Clara is dreaming them. We see her writhing in bed, and we see these visions on the stage, so we know we are seeing what's inside her head. And she's having a terrible dream to that very pretty music. And what Kent miraculously did was choreograph a nightmare to that charming sound. Yeah. You just heard so, ballet begins boom on a nightmare. Now we come close to E.T. Hoffman himself. Yes, yes. Close to the source now. Yeah. Now you have something, a nightmare, but you've also cha- made the girl about 11 or 12. Yes, you? yes, because Clara. in the story she is older than a little girl. I put her as a pre-puberty girl who's having just a rough Mount St. Helens change of hormones inside her. And at that miraculous moment when they shift from being a little girl into being almost a woman. And she's having a dream, and she's dreaming about a prince, she's dreaming about a boy. And to me, because I have the pedantic mind of a child, whenever I see the ballet, I never understand why when Drusselmeyer gives Maria, or Clara, Mm. as we called her, a doll that's as ugly as a nutcracker, why she carries on about it. I've never understood that. And like any child reading a book, I want to know why she cares about this doll. Well, in this little prologue that we've just heard, she sees that the nutcracker is a sort of a Parsifal. He comes to the defense of Pearly Pat, stabs the Mouse King, and saves her life. Well, if you're afraid of mice and you're afraid to be bitten by a mouse king and turn into an ugly pearly pata, you need a nutcracker around to help you. So when Drusselmeyer gives her the doll, she then sees that this will be her little Parsifal doll and it'll take care of her. Now that solved a bit of logic for me. I just felt better knowing that that doll meant something. But now this, this, ho- this now your nutcracker, yours and Kent Stowell's nutcracker, has another dimension entirely to it. Something holier than that sweet, usual sugar candy. Yeah, it's more than a Christmas party and a growing Christmas tree and a divertissement for 25 long minutes on the stage. Now, what did you do as far as costumes and set? Well, what I did was I went back to Hoffman's own time, and I designed it in early 19th century costume and setting. I love that period because it's the period of Mozart, it's the period of Kleist, it's the period of Grimm. In fact, it's the period of my favorite artists, it also, say, in feminine dress is one of the most seductive-looking times because it was empire, where dresses flowed right from the bosom down to the ground. So you saw the shape of the belly and the thighs, and there was something so seductive in the costuming, whereas Dickens' Dickensian clothing is, is of course, corseted in and hiding the body as much as possible. So not only did it serve the purposes of a ballet, where you want to see beautiful bodies because ballet dancers happen to have them, but, two, it was in the correct period in Germany, in Hoffmann's own time, to dress them yeah. in that particular time. Yeah. And it was fun because the costumes were so pretty at that period. So these were the costumes you did. Let, let's just take one pause here for a moment and return. We're talking to Maurice Sendak, and it's about a three or four level conversation. The primary subject are his two books that have just been published. One, Nutcracker, with the actual the story of E.T. Hoffman, the original by the great translator Ralph Mannheim, published by Crown. But mostly the remarkable works, the artistry of Marie Sendak. I'll ask you perhaps to describe some in this book. Mm-hmm. And the other is uh, Love of Three Oranges, our second half of the show. Yes. That, we'll come to that in a wild production at Glyndebourne that you at and Glyndebourne Frank Corsaro two years ago. Mm-hmm. After this pause. 
resuming with Maurice Sendak and the two books and his work with the with the operas. So Nutcracker then she's about twelve years old and the little Nutcracker well, perhaps you should you should describe your Nutcracker. He's a funny little guy, isn't he, with a big head? <laughs> well, he looks like almost all the characters I've drawn because all my characters tend to have big heads because I, as a child, had a big head. And you tend to draw everything that looks like you, probably most artists do, conventionally. Um, what intrigued me about these pictures, or these characters, I should say, was that they are so much part of my nightmare world that to find them in Huffman all written out I just go in and employ them like I employ such crazy people all the time. To find a Princess Perlipat who is a wonderful little beautiful girl gets bitten by a mouse and ends up with a face like yeah. that. I mean, that's just made to order for me. Yeah. So we're talking about perverse transformation yes, as well. Yes, perverse transformation. In the mind of a child. Goblins taking babies, yeah. transformations, uh, changelings, odd goings on in the lives of children. Not really, but up in their heads. This is related then to Grimm's. Very fairy much, tales. very much. As Hoffman is related very much yeah, to Grimm's. Exactly. He knew about Grimm's fairy tales. Yeah. I mean, he was involved in seeing them happen. And there, of course, there's the, now we come to the magician. The godfather's, godfather always is, a, a, until the godfather came along. <laughs> right. Godfather's a benign aspect to it. And here comes the patch over his eye, long John Silver type. Yeah, old Drosselmeyer. Drosselmeyer. Mm -hmm. Who is what? Well, so, Drosselmeyer is an interesting and familiar figure to me because he is, say, me or any artist gone over the top, uh, beyond the pale. He's a grown man who is much more comfortable with children, who really lives in their world, but looks like a regular type middle-aged man and ought to be with the grown-ups, but he can't be with the grown-ups because he doesn't know how to socialize properly. He doesn't know how to be with them properly. With children, he is at his best in terms He's of He's a fantasy. Lewis Carroll with a patch over his eye. Yes, but nowhere as inhibited as Lewis no, Carroll. No. He's not a don at Oxford, no, no. you know, hiding up in his rooms. This yeah. guy is a Meshuggah yeah. running around the place yeah. and, in fact, uh, you know, frightening children. Yeah. Unwittingly, but frightening children. The things he tells Clara and the things he tells Fritz, and they love it because being children, here is one adult who is on their level. Here is one adult who tells you the truth. Yeah. Far out stories, crazy. Clara's parents are so straight-laced and middle-class, and they're constantly pushing Drusselmeyer away and say, you mustn't tell them this, you mustn't yeah. tell them that, spoiling the kids' fun, as often parents do, because they think they're protecting the children from then, bad news. And you've got that mouse kingdom, of course, the king with the seven heads mm -hmm. and the seven crowns. Yeah, they have their own world. Living in this straight-laced Stahlbaum house, they also live in the house, and they feel this is their house. After midnight comes, this is when they take up the business of living in the house. Yeah. And they share the house with the adults. What's nice about the ballet version is that clearly they feel as possessive about the house as the Stahlbaums do. In arranging the book and designing the book, we had to make sure that the mice dominated the book as much as the humans do. Because it's very much their story. Yeah. We've got to come to the mice. In the play within the play, I mean, the toy theater, within the toy theater. Yes. And at that time, of Hoffman at that time of Mozart. And there were toy theaters, yes. were there not? And Drosselmeyer is a toy maker mm -hmm. who builds toy theaters for these children who find them very complicated, not as amusing as, say, um, uh, toy soldiers or something more banal yeah. 
and he's quite disappointed in the children's not appreciating the complexity of yeah. his manufacture. I want to come to something that Hoffman has that you've included that never appears in Nutcracker, and that's the story of the hard nut. The story of the hard nut. Which is a very nut. special mm-hmm. unraveling of a mystery in yes, a way. Yes, it's the unraveling um, of Princess Pearlypat and why she got to be so ugly. And why the poor old Nutcracker looks as funny as he looks exactly. too. Exactly, yes. Come to that, but there's something else that attracted you. When you and Stowell did your Nutcracker on the stage, you put some. You took something from another Tchaikovsky yeah. work. I'll tell you about up. that. It's something we're very proud of, frankly, in that the prologue to the ballet, which we heard the music of just before, is Clara's nightmare when she sees Perlipat, Mouse King, and Nutcracker. And then she wakes up, goes to a party, is a little bit dazed from having this bad dream, but is feeling better through the party because it's a nice conventional party. Then in the middle of the party... Dresselmeyer has private reasons for getting revenge on this child because she has rejected him in many of the dances. The adults move out of the room to go to a salon where two women are singing songs, and we will hear that. And the children are left alone with Dresselmeyer, and he brings a special present in for Clara, and it's three dolls. And it is a recurrence of her nightmare, which we saw in the prologue. It is Pearly Pot, Nutcracker, and Mouse King. In fact, the characters from the story of the hard nut. And right in front of her eyes, he winds them up, and they perform this nightmarish dance, which we've already seen. This, of course, too, frankly, is to help the audience register Mm. this dream in Clara's head. And right in the middle of the familiar and popular Christmas party of Tchaikovsky, we have inserted new music because Tchaikovsky wrote this tight music like a glove and there was no music to use. We took this music out of Pique Dame, which is a pastiche of Mozart because Tchaikovsky adored him. We inserted it. It was in the same key as the Nutcracker, and Clara's Nightmare is renewed. Because beautiful, that takeoff on Papageno here. Yes. So that came in. That came in as a little sort of like tableau vivant in the middle of the ballet, and as a nightmare. These three figures daintily choreographed by Kent but actually playing out the same horror of the prologue. Do you know what you've done, uh, what you're so masterful at doing in all your works? I know in old, old child ballads, in olden ballads, there's a gentle music and there's a horrendous context to it. Yeah, it's that juxtaposition the that's juxtaposition. so wonderful. Yeah. And you heard yeah. that beautiful Mozartian touch here. At the same time, horror is evoked. Yes. I, well, I love yeah. to do that. Yeah. It's so unsettling, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> to have something as pretty sounding as that and juxtapose something grotesque against now, it. Now, within this book, then, you have the mystery unravel. And, of course, there is no mystery in the traditional, in the usual nutcrackers that we see. Now, and that's the story What's, of the hard nut. Mm-hmm. But psychologically, Hoffman is really brilliant because... The story of Pearly Pat and the Nutcracker Prince is really a projection of her own self. Here is a Princess Pearly Pat who was so beautiful, becomes so ugly by a curse by the Mouse Queen, is then transformed into a beautiful girl. We have to find a young man with strong jaws who can break teeth. Mm. They find him. They bring him to the palace. He he gives the princess the Krakenuk, the hard nut. She breaks it with her jaws. He is the one man who can do it for her to find this nut. But in so doing, he is turned into an ugly creature, as yeah. she was, and she's now a beautiful princess. Yeah. But she's a vain, haughty creature, and she dismisses yeah. him, and this ugly nutcracker prince is thrown out, and Clara is thinking as she reads the story, or Marie, as she's called in the book, 
that if I were Princess Pearlipat, I would love him. Now here's a beautiful, it's a beautiful love story. It's a beautiful love story. It's about yeah. a girl's first love. But you I, can reduce it to that. But also a genuine love in yeah. contrast to a love beyond a skin-deep love. Yes, because she's That's saying, what, I will not be so a haughty princess. I will love my man. That explains at the very beginning of our conversation. you got this fun little nutcracker with his big head and this kind of little distorted body. Yet she loves him. Why? Now we know. Now we know. And so this comes out. Because she's a finer spirit yeah. than the pearly pot. Than pearly is. Yes. She's a finer girl. And she will go to great lengths. And when you read the book, you mm. see what great lengths she goes to. She sacrifices everything for him. Because we see her and him and the wild mouse king and uh, the madam mouse and very funny stuff about diet in here, incidentally, yes. too. How that the king, who was it now? Perlipat's father. Perlipat's father is a, is, a, is a gourmand. Yeah. Yes, he loves fat. Yeah. And his wife makes him this very special dish, and there has to be just the right enough fat in it. Of all the but sausage. She, yes, but she has to share that fat with the mouse queen in the kitchen. She yeah. doesn't dare tell her husband, yeah. but his taste buds are so extraordinary that he knows the right amount of fat isn't. It's a hilarious yeah. and crazy sequence. It's funny. And the, how, perhaps, before we switch and go to the next book, we haven't even, we've hardly touched on your actual work in this book to describe just a couple of the uh, huge two-panel photographs you have. The land of the dolls is in mm -hmm. here. That's also a magic land, a Kublai Khan kind of land. Yes, it is. It's a, a seraglio. I, I actually took from the abduction from the seraglio yeah. of Mozart, to have a seraglio here yeah. at the finale of our Nutcracker. And then those three huge double-spread pages in the book, which are sort of, for me, wild things-y, in that you're turning picture pages and not getting words, but just getting a travelogue of fantasy images that bring Clara and the prince to the seraglio. Yeah. the Arabian Thousand and One Nights, yeah, whatever you wish. But in it appears somewhat familiar to me in a yeah. way. Yeah, I, I do I that. see this marvelous big-eyed monster, and yet monster but benign, still and he's out of where the wild things are. I must are. tell you that, that these, of course, are still and stationary in the book, but on stage, these were painted cloths mm. that moved across the stage because yeah. it's part of a travelogue. Yeah. They went very swiftly. And during one performance, I heard a child say, because that went by very fast, the yeah. adults never see the details of things. Yeah. And a kid said, Mommy, there's a wild thing. And she <laughs> said, shh, this is Nutcracker, honey. There's no wild things yeah. in this. So this book will prove forever that that child yeah. was right. right. <laughs> he did indeed and not hallucinate a wild and thing. It's, it's Nutcracker. It's Maurice Sendak's Nutcracker. That is E.T. A. Hoffman. You know A is Amadeus, of huh? course. A for Amadeus. Yes. He loved A Mozart. A for Amadeus. Yeah. He loved Mozart. And it's uh, crowned the publishers. And it's natural, of course, I say for all seasons, but especially for this one. And let's end this part before we go to Prokofiev and you and, and Frank Corsaro, who at this moment is of our conversation again. is directing, is staging a lyric production of the, of the Strauss. Frau uh, on a Schatten. Frau on a Schatten. But let's end with the... Just a piece of the apotheosis, apotheosis, the last part of, of Nutcracker. You, know, you have to describe, as Nutcracker and as you, Maurice Sendak, describe the coming together at the very end. Okay, of, of there is those, those gentle moments at the beginning of the apotheosis as Clara dizzy because she's having like double vision. Her prince is fading, the seraglio is fading. She, in fact, is only a 12-year-old who's dreamed this whole thing. Mm -hmm. She can't go off with a prince yet. She can't leave the yeah. Stahlbaum house. She's a kid, and she has to wake up. 
and she gets confused and on stage everything goes. The whole seraglio scene just fades. Nuremberg comes flooding back on the stage. Her little bedroom comes rushing forward. She darts off stage in a panic, that apotheosis sound, and appears back as a nine-year-old, rather 12-year-old, sitting in her bed, rubbing her eyes, and those gnashing noise grilly sounds and Tchaikovsky are a huge nutcracker head, which is mm. in the book, closing over this tableau while she's sitting in bed mm-hmm. and the teeth mm-hmm. down, which is like saying, look, kid, that's what childhood's all about, yeah. waiting and patience, and you'll be a grown-up someday, yeah. but you don't go off with no prince now. No, and uh, little moments of terror here and there just to... Add a little sauce to your life. Exactly. <laughs> Pecan. <laughs> Talking to Marie Senak, and after this pause, resume with the other book that has been published with him and Frank Corsaro, and that's uh, uh, this is based, adapted from the Glyndebourne, asked about you and Glyndebourne, mm-hmm. opera version of uh, Love of Three Oranges. So resuming with Maurice Sendak, and now we come to uh, the the Farrar Strauss. Gerard Strauss' book. Now, let's talk about this, The Love for Three Oranges. Now, you and Frank Corsaro, a lot of this is dialogue between yes. you. That's not only very funny, but very creative and exciting dialogue. Yeah, well, he's probably a genius. It's a dangerous word to use, but so far as the American opera stage is concerned, Frank probably has been the most inventive and serious and experimental of all men working on the stage. What happened? Now, you've worked with him on a couple of operas before. This. Yeah, he came to me in late 79 because he liked my work. He just looked me up in the phone book and said, how would you like to work with me? And it was like a dream come true. And the first thing we did together was The Magic Flute for the Houston Grand Opera, which was a success. Uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic collaborator, and he really is. We do work extremely well together. Our second venture was The Cunning Little Vixen in New York for Beverly Sills, the Janacek opera. And then Gleinborn asked us to do L'Amour des Trois Oranges, the Prokofiev opera. So this opera. the first time Gleinborn really asked uh, uh, Americans. Yes, it was the first time an American director and American designer worked at Gleinborn. So we were on our toes <laughs> so in terms how, of this production. How do you tackle, now we come to The Love of Three Oranges. Well, now, how this began, how, where'd Prokofiev get it? Well, it's a, if you've read it, it's, yeah. it's a completely cuckoo story. Yeah. And it basically originates as an old Italian fairy tale, which was just put together by the famous Italian writer Calvino. Calvino. Yeah, that's, it's a beautiful edition, by the way. Anyway, the original story is called Love for Three Pomegranates. That was a, taken by Gozzi back in the 18th century, made into a play. And people have used that story over and over and over again. By the time Prokofiev came to use it as a libretto, for this opera, it was almost beyond comprehension. This what is it was about. Pretty, it's the prince is suffering melancholia. Yes, and you've got a, only laughter will cure him. Only laughter will cure him, and nobody can make the prince laugh. And the prime minister and the prime, the king's niece are dead set against him laughing. They want him to die, in fact, so they can course, rule the kingdom. And of course, that that vicious character, Doctor All, almost Arthurian, Fata Morgana. Yes, the witch, the, the witch. witch who is out to subdue the princess too. Yeah. The, the joke in this, uh, the gutsy joke, the Prokofiev joke, is that the way to make the prince more melancholy, in fact, to kill him with depression, is to make him read contemporary poetry and literature, <laughs> that it's so awful that uh, that's what's doing him in. So it was a stab at 
everything at it at the moment in contemporary art. Well, I want to hear what you and what Frank Corsaro did. And again, you went back to sources. I'll ask you about yeah. that in a moment. Suppose we hear the prologue. Lovely. The prologue. Well, you know, it starts out, it starts out like we're going to see a show. That was a wild beginning. And these are performers telling us. Do you I, know, excuse me for interjecting for a second, that this opera was commissioned by the Chicago Opera Company in 1923 or 25, and Prokofiev wrote it for Chicago, and it was sung in French originally. So here we are in the city of the origins yeah. of Prokofiev's yeah. opera. The problem Frank and I had was how to make sense of the story. It is a fairy tale within a fairy tale. It is an ironical pastiche of contemporary art. There are choruses coming from the left. There are choruses coming from the right. And it is an incomprehensible work. And although the music is delicious, it's a young man's opera. He was in his mid-20s when he wrote it. All we hear of it, alas, is the march from The Love of Three Oranges, which is the most famous piece from it, uh, which is too bad. Frank, being the kind of... Uh, mad genius that he is, try to make some coherent sense out of it, sense for him and sense for me, because I needed the fairy tale part of it. That's what I could hold on to. There's a mad transvestite cook in this thing. Mm. There's a strange world out there which I could handle. Frank had to make sense of the real world so that I could live inside the fantasy world. And that's where we work well together. So he decided that the commedia figure, no, I'm sorry, there were no commedia figures to begin with. These choruses interjecting and breaking up the work, as we just heard in the prologue, was an intellectual conceit that made no sense theatrically. They would have to mean something. So he invented the world of the commedia, that in fact, this is a troupe of Italian actors and actresses wandering in France. Unbeknownst to them, they're wandering during the very beginnings of the French Revolution. They haven't heard about it in Italy. This little troop comes to the shores of France where everything is spiky and mad and where the populace is outraged by the very word, name, royalty, and they stupidly put up their little Italian stand, these darling little commedia figures, which I stole directly out of Domenico Tiepolo's figures of commedia figures, which is all in the book, and they put up their show, and they announced they're going to do The Love of Three Oranges, which is all about royalty winning in the end. <laughs> Poverinos, they don't know what they're doing. So now the chorus, which makes no sense, now is a group of French people yeah. come to the shore, see these Italians putting up their tent. Hey, show. What's the show about? Love of Three Oranges. you got to be crazy. It's about yeah. the king and the queen winning. They watch the whole opera. And at the end, which we think was a very funny and rather weak ending for Prokofiev because it's hail, we'll hear it in a moment, hail the princess, hail the prince, blah, 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 boom, the opera's done. What Frank did was they say, hail the queen, hail the prince, hail this, and the audience takes garbage and rotten oranges and hurls it <laughs> at the, and the curtain closed. It was Bernard Haitink conducting opening night in Glyndebourne. The curtain closed on garbage being thrown in all directions and the princess and prince and king are running off Oh, the audience had a wonderful time. Within that, there is the story of the three oranges and how they live at this mad transvestite cook's palace. Mm -hmm. uh, Creonte is the name of the mad cook. Well, I stole my own things right out of In the Night Kitchen. I put a whole stage, a kitchen stage, which a huge cook is made out up out of utensils, and he sings. It was terrific. I mean, it was wild and disorderly. So How many stagehands had to handle the cook? More than, well, there was a brilliant man named Paul Fowler built the cook right there mm -hmm. in Lewis, which is a little town right next to Glyndebourne. He's now, he has worked with me since again. 
the cook was huge, yeah. huge head. Arms were made out of cooking spoons. Earrings were weights that you weigh meat on. Uh, his body was an oven. His breasts were two big pots that jutted out of the oven. It was grotesque beyond belief. And you know where it comes from? This will sound crazy, but it's true. My favorite movie when I was a kid was King Kong. Ah, I must have seen it 100,000 yeah, yeah. times. And my, almost my favorite scene in it is when Kong is brought to New York. He's behind a curtain. And whoever the guy was, the entrepreneur who brought him from the mad jungles, mm -hmm. comes out to the audience and says, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to be scared when the curtain opens. But I assure you, this creature is tied. You're safe. Mm -hmm. And everybody is faputzed and all dressed up in the audience in their gowns and tuxedos. The curtain opens. There's this <laughs> horrible creature trying to. And they all rise from their seats in terror. I wanted to recreate that once in my life. You know, in watching Maurice Sendak right now in the radio studio, you understand why the books are so full of imagination and all the wonder, wonder, wonderfulness, wonderfulness of childlike imagination. Because you were acting it out at that yes, moment. So I too. love that scene with yeah. all my heart. So that was it. So that was it. So when the kitchen and Matt Cook from oranges appears, the curtain slowly parted, and you saw this grotesque on the stage, beyond belief, big, and this huge head singing, and I saw people all dressed up for opening night glamour, half rise out of their seats, and my life was complete. Yeah. I had recreated that King Kong yeah. moment. You point out in Glyndebourne, people come there in, in uh, formal. They must come, the, must come formal. Must come formal. So that's the audience. Yes. Another takeoff you did. Since you made this time of the French Revolution and you had this extra touch, I'm going to ask you about the Commedia dell'arte aspect of it, too, that makes it fun and humor and seemingly very improvisational. I was mad yeah. because you had clowns all over the stage. I mean, you always said you have audiences. It's a play within a play. Yes. And you have the audience on the stage, that is the crowd on the stage, being watched. And so that's the time of the French Revolution and a new yes. class is coming well, into it was like It was like a Chinese puzzle, the whole thing. You saw, this, you saw the, the, uh, the K or the pier that they're standing on at the beginning where the Italian troupe sets up their little Domenico Tiepolo set and performs the beginning of the opera. Then the next scene opens where you're now in the opera. Then the next scene opens and you're densely in the opera. The K is gone. And so what it really means is you've gotten yourself emotionally involved psychically with what's happening yeah. on stage. And literally, it is happening on stage. You're getting deeper and deeper into yeah. the opera. At the end, you come back to the K. So the finale, when they hurl garbage at the yeah. actors and actresses, yeah. you're back to where it all began. Yeah. By the way, it's interesting that you've gone back in both both works, in uh, Nutcracker and in Love for Three Oranges, you go back to origins. In yeah. Nutcracker, you went back to Hoffman, the original, the real Hoffman. In this, you went back. How did the story begin? And you go back to almost the Comedia dell'arte time. Yeah, well, I am it's funny because some aspect of my work is, is strange and far out, and yet I'm a pedantic person who does very thorough homework. I like doing yeah. my homework. Yeah. So when you go back to Commedia, you go back to the proper sources of it. And to me, the most beautiful one is Domenico Tiepolo. Those drawings of, of Puncinello and his wife. He was a of Goldoni? Yes. And he was the son of the famous Tiepolo. Yes, he was the son of the famous Tiepolo, the painter Tiepolo. Uh, the son is most famous for his drawings of 
Pulcinello and all the Commedia figures. Uh, in this book, Oranges, that Farrah Strauss published, we actually use some of the original uh, Domenico Tiepolo drawings like this one to show where I got the style from. I, I really literally took his costumes. This was a Punch and Judy show. By the way, Punch and Judy, that goes back, doesn't it? Punch and Judy. Goes way back, Has forever and ever and ever. Right. Just look at the date on that, 1791. Yeah. 1791. That's the year of Mozart's death. So the clue and baseline of everything we're talking about is that 1791 and that decade of Mozart's life is where I can circle yeah. over and over and over again. You do that, yeah. I circle because... That's your favorite decade, isn't it? He's I mean, my favorite yeah. decade. He's my favorite artist. He's my favorite man. Um, it's my favorite music. And it's the source of all consolation for anything bad in life is Mozart. Yeah. So that every production and everything I do, and it may sound very precious to say this, but I don't give it damn whether it does or not, that in fact I relate to him as one relates to a godhead in the, in the sense of, of getting your creative energy and spirit from the very best there is and that you're never going to be and so you go to the source. What, what is beautiful about this work, one of the aspects of it, is that there the Tiepolo works here, drawings, and there's your stuff. My version and I of like it. So it's your versions. You've got these great comedy figures, the clowns, there's the sad prince, there's the, there's the ma malignant uh, prime minister, mm -hmm. but there's a costume, but the, the great clowns are here. I want to show you, soldiers. I want to show you a sketch that's in here of my, it's a very sexy opera too, there's lots of naughty goings on, which is very typical mm -hmm. of 18th century, where they weren't ashamed of such things, but there is my creonte. Yeah. Now this is scene, act three, scene two. And this is a huge panel. There's these are all smoke coming out of the stove. There are little bits of hands and describe the scene. There's out. the cook. There's the cook. And his, the it's composed of a huge fake head. There are two men in that head which make the eyes move, which make him sing, which make his tongue loll. These are his arms, which are huge cooking spoons like my mother had in Brooklyn. His body is made up of an oven. Uh, parts of his body, um, his phallus, his bosoms, everything is here, but they're made up of kitchen utensils. Mm. And he dominated the whole scene, and the scene is all of not even five minutes in length. So that was a very costly construction for five minutes. But then, were you working at Gleinborn, which is one of the most yeah. perfect will that little be opera done, houses in the world. Will that be done here? This has been rented for a performance in New York in September of 85, uh, yeah. The New York City Opera is yeah. doing our City version, opera. Frank's version of uh, maybe Three Oranges. Me, maybe Chicago will do it, too. It's wonderful. exciting and be funny. Wonderful. And that, I'm thinking about That's your Fata costumes, Morgana. too. Fata Morgana, the villain, and there she is, well, there Madame she, Lafarge. <laughs> yes, no. There she is, dressed in Delacroix's costume of victory. Uh, it's ridiculous. She comes out at the end with a guillotine. And see, the, the villains of this piece have to win. That's the paradox, that the Italians set out to make the good people win, but the French audience wants the villains to win because the villains are the common people. Yeah. So they want the vicious prime minister and the vicious yeah. father to win. But at the very end, we know it's Comidillari. At the very it's, end, we know it's a It's play. a joke. It's really, the whole thing, the whole thing is, is a joke within a joke within a joke. Let's take a slight, let's take a slight pause. I want to get your thoughts about just about everything. Uh, the works you did with Corsaro, your own, and your... Uh, where the wild things are, plus these two new books. After we hear, let's hear the finale. Lovely. The finale of uh, Prokofiev's Love of Three Oranges. Fading out on uh, 
on uh, Love for Three Oranges, Marie Sendak, my guest. We're talking about his two just-published books, one Nutcracker, the E.T. Hoffman original with a great translation by Ralph Mannheim, published by Crown, and the beautiful... What, how, how can I describe Illustrations, I suppose. Thank you. Well, it's... it's illustrations? Adaptions of the adaptions, settings and fresh pictures within for the, the book. book. And yeah. the, we have that, and we have Farah Strauss-Giro's publishing of uh, Love of Three Oranges. Well, let's start with the drawings. Okay. At the beginning. Well, How you and Corsaro work. In the, in the back of the book beginning, you have these panels. Yeah. Well, when Frank begins, and say he's decided we're doing it in the, in the revolution, and it's commedia figures, he says, Maurice, you go home and do a little storyboard, much as you do a picture book, of the logistics of this whole thing. See what they look like. See what it feels like. See what the sets look like. So I, I make up the whole opera. And as it turns out, this storyboard is very close to what the opera really looked like. So that the little prologue set where the Italians set up their little theater on the quay in Paris is here. And the story progresses in front of the audience who is commenting constantly both pro and con against the story. The Wicked Witch, Fata Morgana being an inflatable doll, which when I drew this thing, I thought it would never be possible. But in fact, Lionborn provided us with an inflatable doll. Hmm. She grew up to the full size of the theater. Hmm. <laughs> and it was a sensational sight. So this is basically a logistical plan of where the action takes place in the opera. And Frank then works from this, changes it freely as he wishes, but it gives us a blueprint because there's so much action in this opera. There are so many characters. There are so many cross-current themes and variations that for it to be comprehensible to an audience has got to be tracked very, very carefully. And so it's a storyboard. It's a storyboard. This is kind of a exactly. scenario. Yes. It's a graphic, it's a graphic one. A graphic. And how do, we, how do we perhaps describe one or two more of the, of the artwork in it? There's Fader Morgana. Yeah, there the she end. is in her Wicked Witch costume. Um, the very beginning will show us what the actual uh, key looked like. There's a drawing of where the opera begins. Of course, I'm not going to find it because we're pouring through pages. It's in the. It's in the. Well, here it is. Actually, here. There's a, a, a pencil study of the stage. Here is the. See, they're putting up their little show, and they have a hang a, yeah. a, a canopy, and the background is the city of. Rouen, or the city of anywhere uh, in France. And you set it at a certain time. Set it, you see, once you set it at a certain time, it's not different from a picture book, let's say Wild Things or anything. You have to decide that no matter how strange and fantastical the subject matter, that there has to be an architectural plan. It's got to be constructed Mm -hmm. in a vigorous and straightforward way. It's got to be in a place. So Wild Things is in a little boy's room. Uh, Love of Three Oranges is on a key in France. Nutcracker is in a bourgeois German household. Fantasies do not take off tippy-toe into the clouds. So, they root out yeah. of something real. So in all your works, whether it be the scenarios, the, the, the libretto of, a, of an opera or of a ballet, just as in your books, there's a specific place. Yes, it starts and, and ends. a specific child. Yes, and a specific child's vision. It doesn't vary. You get yeah. to know the character of the person you're dealing with, yeah. and then everything that happens, book, ballet, opera, whatever, lo- logically comes out of this child's vision. Otherwise, it's confusing, and otherwise, yeah. it's, it's a conceit. Yeah. It's not, it has no yeah. 
yeah. force to it. So Nutcracker is about Clara. You must know about her to know what the pictures are all about. Otherwise, they're, they're unreasonable. Yeah. Everything she imagines in the seraglio at the end of Nutcracker are bits and pieces of furnishings that she has seen in her house right from the beginning. Because her parents are, are eclectic collectors of yeah. things. So here we come to another part of Sendak's artistry and imagination. That child sees an inanimate object, and that, like the window shade being put up on the window mm -hmm. or the foot of a certain sofa, and that evokes an image of something very alive That's right. and wild. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there is a turbaned um, glass figurine in her parents' dining room. It's quite an ugly piece. But in fact, it ends up dancing for her in her dream. She takes only what she's got. Max has just so much in his house. Clara has just has so much in her house. Children take whatever they got. It may be meager or it may be substantial. But that becomes the stuff of their visions and dreams. It's all they've got. So it comes back to the imagination. Yeah. And uh, the phrase I use about you and about the imaginative child, sense of wonder. Well, it's the embellishment of the very ordinary and banal things of your life and turning them into yeah. great mysteries. Yeah. The very beginning, we're talking about one of those phrases I use, not mine, others have used it too, but I, I, I just marked it down because they just stick to the phrase. The fantasy, reality. The, the reality, the window. The fantasy, whatever that window leads yes, to. exactly. The scary, comforting. Scary, those faces, and yet you know... They're okay. It's okay. Mm -hmm. So That's the kids it. know they're okay. Yeah. Sometimes the adults don't know they're okay. I mean, the adults are put off by long teeth and big noses. Kids are amused by long teeth and big noses. That's a very crucial difference. When does that happen? This is the key. I'm asking a question nobody can answer. When does it happen in the life of a human a child? Now, what a child accepts as natural and good becomes a certain moment as he grows up, evil and ugly. I was autographing books, answering your question, yeah. autographing your books at Marshall Fields the other day, and a little boy came and his mother said, honey, this is the man who did all the books you like, and there was apps on his face was tedium, and all he saw was a middle-aged man with a graying beard. What did that have to do with his precious books? <laughs> then I began autographing, and the kid said, mommy, what's he doing? I mean, why was this man scribbling all over his book when he's told never to write in his books? Yeah. That's that magic age where he sees the, the deceit in adulthood. <laughs> Who yeah. cares about famous people? Who cares about autographs? He's smearing up his precious book. Yeah. Then a minute later, that child is transformed into a conventional creature. And it's horrifying how quickly yeah. it happens. Who says, may I please have your autograph? I just love to have and My mommy said I could meet you today, and I just love you. Nonsense. He's been changed. He's been cloned. It's like those creature features that we see on television, that something happens in society that makes children polite, makes them forget these impulses, and civilizes them to a degree where they lose the most charming aspects of their personality. And we end up with God knows how many years in therapy trying to recover some of the good of those early years. This to me is very sad. And I, perhaps, of course, I'm generalizing and making it sound okay. too loose, but there is that quality of working with children and, and getting that aesthetic pleasure from their enjoyment of what you do, and then at a certain age, it's gone. It's gone. 
Little girls, I remember a little girl once saying to me at an autographing, don't crap up my book. And her mother was pulverized. Mm. I, I laughed myself sick for hours after that. Don't crap up my book. Yeah. She was protecting her book of from course. this anonymous man. Yeah. At another age, she would come with gloves on and tell me how much yeah. she wanted my autograph. Yeah. Now that, why does that happen? When does it happen? Why is it necessary that it happen? Is that called culture and civilization? That's called boring, so far as I'm concerned. Because they don't grow up cultured and civilized. Look at the people we have living in the world. They may wear gloves and speak to us politely, but they're pathologic cases, many of them. It scares me to see children lose this, this, this grave, wonderful, fierce honesty that they have, which makes them the best audience in the world. And so, of course, they see that in Marie Sendak's work. They see these ugly creatures, but they're wonderfully. Well, Again, you know, as I said, wonder, I've used it several times now. Not wonderful. Wonderful meaning full of wonder in that sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I so would, the creatures are that way. Yeah. It would be nice to imagine that kids see in me a pal, uh, some middle-aged man with a graying beard who somehow still inhabits their world to a degree. And that would be a great compliment if they saw me as an ally. Well, that's it. You inhabit their world, and, that, and they understand. That's why, of course, the Maurice Sendak works and books are as popular. I'm happy to know it as they are. And these two, Nutcracker, Maurice, his pictures, E.T. Hoffman's story with the Mannheim translations, Crown, and uh, The Three Oranges, Sendak and his colleague Corsaro Farrar Straucheró, and Naturals for the season. Thank you very much. Thank you, Studs. It was wonderful. This is our program for this evening. Uh, next Sunday, my guest is Rua Cheng Ying, the celebrated Chinese actor who played the role of Willie Loman in Arthur Miller's production, Death of a Salesman, in Beijing. And it was a memorable moment in certainly an Asiatic theater. Until then, take it easy, but take it.